6, 6th chapter of Ephesians, and just this one verse that we read this morning, verse 12. Ephesians 6, verse 12, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. This evening we are continuing our series of messages on Satan, our adversary. And already we have looked at his creation, his character, and his campaign. And we divided his campaign up into three distinct areas. Uh, he has an army, and he has an area of which he operates, which is the air and the earth, and then he has armaments. And this morning in the service, we dealt with two of those areas, uh, the area and the army. So tonight we want to look then at his armaments, his weapons. What kind of weapons does the devil use against mankind who is God's highest of creation? Or against the church of Jesus Christ, which is his body on earth, Christ's body on earth. What are the big guns, as it were, that he brings out against us? Well, I'm just going to give you a few tonight. There are more than what I have going to share with you, but the first one I think is probably the most obvious is temptation. Who among us has not been tempted many times? Tempted to do the wrong thing, to say the wrong thing, to go to the wrong places, tempted to make the wrong decisions and the wrong choices, all kinds of temptations. David was tempted to number Israel, and it cost him dearly when he did that. Because by numbering Israel when God didn't require him to, meant that he was looking to see what fleshly armaments that he had. Was his army big enough? Was it strong enough? And in that sense, he was not depending on God. And so it cost him dearly. He tempted Ananias and Sapphira to lie against the Holy Ghost when they lied about how much they gave in the early church. He tempted Peter to presume to deny Jesus Christ his sufferings on the cross. And that's when Jesus said, Get thee behind me, Satan. He savors the things that be of men, not of God. And he tempted, of course, the very first temptation, he tempted Eve uh, in the Garden of Eden. And I want you to notice now uh, how the temptations are very different. Uh, for example, when he tempted Eve in Eden, it, it was very subtle and it was very sly. And, and he came into the Garden very subtly, very slyly, and tried to get them to doubt God's word, to get them to doubt God's goodness, to make God out to be some kind of a spoiled sport and killjoy. Has God said, or you shall not surely die? He completely went against what God had said. But he did it in such a way that Eve responded to it. It tempted her. And the devil's no dozer, as we say in Northern Ireland. He's very clever. And when he comes with a temptation to us, he knows that it's something that's going to hit a button in our life. That's something that 
perhaps we would want to do. And it be attractive to us one way or the other. And so he came very subtly and very slyly and said, God doesn't want you to do this because then you would be as God knowing good and evil. And we see today there's two ways this applies. We see today how he comes against the church. He comes against the believer. And in his temptation, he's basically trying to cite us somehow to doubt God's word, to doubt God's goodness. That God really doesn't have our best interest at heart. That he's denying us something that would be good for us and he's withholding that from us. The truth is, it would be very bad for us and that's why God wants to withhold it from us. But he would try to make it out that this is good for us. In fact, when Eve saw the, the fruit and it, seemed, and it was good to the, it looked good. She saw that it looked good. It was appealing. It was attractive to her. And the devil comes along with us and he shows us and gives us things that are attractive and appealing and looks good. But actually, if God says we're not to have it, then it is for our good that we're not to have it. But he tries to make out that God somehow is going to deny us uh, and not give us what would be good for us and what would be right for us to have and what we would actually want to have. When it comes to the world, we see this today, how that the new atheists, as we would call them today, they're very bold uh, to make their statements, uh, who tells us uh, not to believe, not even not to believe in God, not to believe God, but not to believe in God, not to believe in God at all. If you believe in God, you're foolish. If you believe in God, somehow or other, uh, you will block knowledge coming to you. You will not be scientific. You'll not be rational. You'll not be logic. So therefore, your life will be less than it should be if you believe in God because to believe in God, it's fairy tales and fables and stories. And that's what comes through today. That somehow if you believe in God, you're foolish. And if you believe in God, you're never going to go on in this life because you need rationale, you need logic, you need all, which we do. And you need to believe in science, which to a large degree we do believe in science, but you need to go the whole hog with it and not to believe in fairy stories and fables. And there's a big temptation to do that today. More and more and more young people are turning away from the things of God in the Western world and they're believing that lie that if we believe in God, that somehow we'll not be clever. There'll be something wrong with us if we believe in God. We'll be delusional. We'll be sorry if we believe in God. That we really need to believe in science and technology and logic and reason and rationale. And if we do that, we're going to be wonderful. And so he does it comes very subtly and very slightly to get us to doubt God's word and to doubt God's goodness. And then he came to, came to Job in the land of Luz. And he didn't come subtly or slyly. I mean, this was right in your face. He came savagely, scornfully, brutally. So he just didn't sidle up to Job. I mean, this was just full force. And, and if you read Job 1 and 2, you'll find it very, very quickly that he brought against Job the Sabaeans and the Chaldeans and lightning and a great wind, it says. And he lost his wealth. And he lost his children. And he lost his marriage. His wife said, curse God and die. 
And he lost his servants, and he lost his camels, and his donkeys, and all of his prosperity. He lost everything. And it was a brutal attack. It was a savage attack against this good, righteous, upright man that feared God and eschewed evil. And all this was trying to do was to tempt Job, to tempt Job to believe that somehow or other he would lose his faithful, or he would lose his faith in God's goodness. That God would not be good, and that God was not somebody to put your trust in. That God would desert you in the bad times, and you'd be left alone. And God could care less about you. And all of that was tempting Job to doubt God's goodness and to doubt the blessing of God and to doubt that, doubt that God even cared for him. How many times have you heard the statement, if God really loved me, why would he let this happen to me? See, as soon as that thought comes into your mind, it's the devil trying to say to you, you see, God's not really good. If God was really good, you wouldn't be going through this right now. And that was the thought he was trying to put into Job's mind. If God was really good, if God was really powerful, if God really cared about you, why would you be in this mess? Why would you be going through all of this? See, that's the big temptation. If God is good, why all this trouble? Why did this happen to me if God's good? And if he can get that thought into your mind and plays on it, then you'll begin to doubt God's goodness. My poor old Job, he didn't have the Bible that we have. He didn't even know the devil was behind it. In fact, he thought God was behind it. And he says, even if God slays me, I'll still trust him. <laughs> it was a big test for Job. And God had every confidence in Job that he would come through the test. After he came through it all, he says, even if God slays me, I'll still trust him. I shall then come forth as gold. <laughs> and he did. And he trusted God in spite of it all. And then Jesus in the wilderness. He came to him softly. And if there's a word, I'm going to make it up, savingly. Savingly and softly. What do I mean by that? Well, let's read Matthew chapter in Matthew chapter four. Let's just remind ourselves again of the temptations. Matthew four verse one. It's also in Luke four, by the way. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted forty days and forty nights, and afterwards he was hungry. Now the tempter came to him. He said, if you are the Son of God, now we need to make a correction here. What we really sh should be putting in there is since you are the Son of God. The devil knew fine rightly he was the Son of God. Even the demons knew he was the Son of God and announced that he was the Son of God. So let's not fill ourselves into thinking the devil didn't know whether this was the Son of God. Now, he knew absolutely this was the Son of God. It's, it's a bit like somebody, some of you saying, you know, sometimes you say to somebody who's a bit smart, you say, well, well, if you're so smart, you answer this. I don't know what we're saying. Since you're so smart, you answer this. That's what really meaning, isn't it? Or, or if you're so strong, you go and lift it. Or since you are so strong, you go and lift it. That's what we're really saying. That's what the devil's saying. So it's really since 
So he's not putting a question mark over whether he believes this is the Son of God or not. He knows this is the Son of God. So he said, If or since you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. Now this first temptation, there's three of them here. Uh, And the the first temptation is is to save yourself. To save yourself. Command these stones to be made into bread. Now, there's nothing wrong when you're hungry eating bread. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that. And Jesus was very, very hungry indeed. But I told you before in another study, the thing about Jesus was while he was on earth, he never, ever used his power outside of the will of the Father. And he certainly never used it for himself. And he wasn't about to use it here. When he used the power that God had given him, it was to be in the will of God for the purposes of God. And this wasn't it. But what the devil was, was a sense was saying, save yourself. Here you are. You're in the desert place. It's barren. You're hungry. You're here with the wild animals. Look at the state you're in. You're emaciated. After, believe me, after you fast 40 days, you lose a lot of weight. A lot of weight. And he's out there in that desert place. Look at you. Why don't you just go ahead? Save yourself. Don't deny yourself anymore. Make no more sacrifices. Just go ahead and turn the stones into bread. And sometimes this is what the devil wants to do with us. He doesn't want us to deny ourselves. He wants us to save ourselves. To take the easy route every time. And he'll try to give the impression that God really doesn't care because look at you. Look at all the sacrifice you've made. And look, there's no food here. God has made no provision for you. You fast at 40 days. You're still in the desert place. Where's the provision? But Jesus didn't fall for that trick. He says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. In other words, Jesus said, it's okay, I'll get food. Father, look after me. Don't you worry about that. He'll take good care of me. But actually, he said in another place, he says, my food is to do the will of the Father, isn't it? <laughs> Remember he said that, his disciples. Do you know, if you read on down, I think it's verse 11, it says, afterwards, afterwards, it says the angels came and ministered unto him. Now it doesn't say specifically, but I wonder did they bring him food? I would be nearly sure that they would bring him food because the angel brought Elijah food. You remember Elijah when he was on the backside of the desert? You remember when he ran from Jezebel? Remember when the angel met him and he woke him up? And what did he do? He gave him food and water. God got the ravens to feed Elijah at the brook. Brought him bread and flesh in the morning and bread and flesh in the evening. Because there was a band God at the brook. And here is Jesus, a band the Father, having no food, having no provision, but he trusted. And as soon as it was over, the angels came and says, and they ministered unto him. And even though it doesn't say, I would like to think that they came to him and they blessed him with some food and some drink. The temptation is to save yourself. 
Do you remember when Jesus was on the cross in Matthew 27? Have a little quick look at this. Matthew 27. Verse 38, Then the two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right hand, the other on the left. And those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, You who destroyed the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. Likewise, the chief priests also mocking with the scribes and elders said, He saved others. Himself he cannot save. If he is the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross and we will believe him. He trusted in God. Let him deliver him now if he will have him. For he said, I am the son of God. In other words, save yourself. Even the robbers who were crucified with him reviled him and said the same thing. In Luke 23, verse 39, it tells us that, that one of the robbers says, save yourself and us. Save yourself, save us too. And that's one of the temptations the devil has for us, is to save ourselves, to not to make any sacrifices, to take the easy way, not the hard way. But Jesus said, Man shall not live by bread alone. So he wasn't going to fall for that. Second temptation was show yourself. Show yourself. Look what it says in Matthew 4. Then the devil took him up into the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are, since you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge over you. And in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, It is written again, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. Show yourself. You're the Son of God. You're the Messiah. Why don't you show yourself? What better opportunity than from the pinnacle of the temple? What better opportunity to prove the Word of God that you are who you say you are. Psalm 91, that's where the quotation came from. Psalm 91 is a psalm of protection, basically a psalm of protection for the Messiah. It's a messianic psalm. And so the devil, in effect, was saying, since you are the Son of God, you are the Messiah. Well, go ahead, show everybody that, and let's, let's put God's Word to the test here. Let's just prove it. After all, it says in Psalm 91, if you throw yourself or you fall, then the angel just swoop in at the last second so that you don't dash your foot against a stone. What better opportunity? But again, that was not the will of God. Sure it wasn't. Jesus knew what he was going to have to suffer. He knew what he was going to have to do. Jesus had not have to prove anything about the Word of God. He was the Word of God. And so he says no. He did not accept that. What did he say? You shall not tempt the Lord your God. Don't put him to the test. Don't try to show yourself. Sometimes people get under all kinds of trouble by trying to put God in a corner and say, God, you better do this. You better do this. 
because I'm going to do this and you better do that. Dangerous game to play. Unless God has given you strict instructions, I wouldn't attempt to put God to the test. Jesus, the Son of God, didn't even do it. He said, don't tempt God that way. It wasn't in the will of God. It wasn't the purposes of God. So he didn't do it. But that's what the devil would try to get us to do. To get outside the purposes and outside the will of God and kind of put God to all kinds of tests. Not a good thing to do. Liable to end up spiritually shipwrecked if you do that. The third test was save yourself, show yourself, sell yourself. Again, the devil took him up onto an exceedingly high mountain showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Now, notice that Jesus didn't argue the point with him. Didn't argue the point with him. God had given Adam all the world. Say, so, well, he put him in a garden. Yes, in a real garden, little garden. But everything beyond that, everything in this earth was to be under his dominion. He says, I give you dominion over all, over everything. But he lost that. He submitted his dominion that God had given him to Satan himself in the garden. And now the last Adam, Jesus, would have to come as a man and reclaim that back from him, that which Adam had lost. Adam was our human federal head, and he lost that on our behalf. It's all gone. Jesus comes as our spiritual federal head, and he takes that back. There's no question that God has given Jesus the kingdoms of this world. Ask of me, and I will give you the nations, the heathen for your inheritance. In Daniel chapter 2, remember we told the, gave the vision how that, that vision that Nebuchadnezzar had of that great statue of all those metals representing all those empires and kingdoms and how then supernaturally a stone was cut out without hands and it hit that big statue on the feet and the whole statue began to crumble. All of those nations began to crumble and then it says that that stone became a great mountain and it filled the whole earth. Talking about the kingdom of the Lord. But here is Satan trying to tempt him. Trying to tempt him to worship him. To get his eyes of God and God's purposes and God's timing. You know, sometimes we find it very, very difficult to wait in God's timing, don't we? Even we know that God wants us to have something, we find it difficult to wait on it. And it's in that waiting time where the devil will come and try to tempt us to do something stupid and wrong, to lose what God has intended us to have. He says, all these I will give you if you'll only fall down and worship me. See, that's the thing that he wants. Now, he's not going to come to you personally and say, fall down and worship me. But he's going to come, and he's going to come in such a way where we'll get our eyes of God and get our eyes onto some other God. 
something that's going to take up all of her time and all of her effort and all of her money and all of her talents and all of her abilities, all of her energies. That becomes our God to us. And then we get our eyes of the true God. Jesus said to him, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. You see, he comes in so many ways to tempt us. How do we overcome temptation? 1 Corinthians 10, 13 tells us that there is no temptation that has come to us, that we're not capable of winning that battle with Christ. Not one. Not a single one. No temptation, such as common demand, but God will, with the temptation, also make a way of escape, for He is faithful. He sees us and He's faithful, and He'll give us a way of escape. And of course we can use the word of God the way Jesus did exactly. It is written, it is written, it is written. You say, well, the devil quotes scripture, he certainly does, but he takes it out of context and he twists it to suit himself. So that's why we need to know what the scriptures are really saying and get the real truth of it. Second thing is deception. Deception. Eve was deceived. Apostle Paul says that Eve was deceived by the devil. It doesn't say that Adam was deceived. It says Eve was deceived. And having known that Eve was deceived, Adam deliberately, knowingly went ahead and partook. But Eve was deceived. In Genesis, sorry, in Revelation chapter 20, Revelation chapter 20, verse 7. This is where Satan has just been released from the bottomless pit where he was for a thousand years. Now when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison, will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle. His number is as the sand of the sea. They went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. And fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are. And they will be tormented day and night forever and forever. See the power he has gotten deception where he will be able to deceive whole nations. Now, in John 8, 44, Jesus said he was the father of lies. He is an accomplished liar. Some people are so good at lying, they're just very plausible, aren't they? You've all heard about different con men, con artists. Calling people out of their inheritance, calling people out of business stuff, all kinds of things. They're, they're so plausible. They look so nice and they're so suave. And they're so acceptable. And they seem so trustworthy. But they're just absolute liars. Accomplished liars. Ball-faced liars. And that's how they get away with it. 
because you would never believe in the million years. There were such liars. We saw on television this weekend Lance Armstrong, arguably the greatest cyclist that ever rode a bike in the world. Won seven Tour de France yellow jerseys. Every single one of them he was taking drugs. A liar. <laughs> An accomplished liar for years. He was lying through his teeth. He lied to his teammates. He lied to his family. He lied to his sons. He lied to everybody. And he's had to finally admit, I'm a liar. See, that's deception. That's from the father of lies, is it not? In Second Thessalonians chapter 2, It tells us something about the Antichrist here. <clears throat> now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, we ask you not to be so soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us, as though the day of Christ had come. Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first, and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. This is speaking of the Antichrist. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things, and now you know what is restraining that he may be revealed in his own time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. And when the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming, the coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan, with all power, signs, and lying wonders." and with all unrighteous deception among those who perished because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this reason, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie, that they may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. The Antichrist is going to be the arch deceiver. The world is waiting for the Antichrist. The world is waiting for somebody to come and sort out all the mess that we're in economically, with the nations, everything. And when he comes, he will be very, very plausible. He'll be very, very clever. He'll be very, very wise. He'll be very, very suave. He'll be a great communicator. He will just be made for television. He will have all the skills are necessary to be a top man, a top politician, and the world will wander after the beast. Underneath all of that facade, he's called the beast because that is his real nature. And when he gets in power, and when he's truly in power, then his beast nature will be uncovered and revealed for who he truly, really is. And that will be what the Antichrist is like. He'll not come with two horns sticking out of him and a tail behind his back. He'll be accepted and received readily and adored and worshipped. <laughs> but that's another story. But he will have great powers of deception. 
In Matthew 24, and time is going on, so I better speed up. Because if that snow comes on tonight, you'll never forgive me. There's we, Rachel, going to her warm work, aren't you, darling? <laughs> In Matthew chapter 24, he's asked about signs of the end times. Verse 3, Now, as he sat at the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be? What will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and will deceive many. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines, pestilences, earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of sorrows. They will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you. You will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will be offended and will betray one another and will hate one another. Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. There's three times the word deceive is used in those few verses. And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached into the world as a witness to all the nations. And the end, the end will come. Further on down it says, verse 22. And unless those days should be shortened, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. Then if anyone says to you, look, there, here is the Christ, or there, do not believe it. For false Christ and false prophets will arise and show great signs and wonders to deceive. Note this, if possible, even the very elect. Deception in the end days is going to become so powerful that it will be so close to the real thing that if possible, it will even deceive believers. And Jesus warns against that. So make no mistake, in the end days come, there will be an outpouring of God's power, but there's going to be an outpouring of the enemy's power. And false prophets will come. And all kinds of things will happen. Jesus told us there, told us very clearly. And he says, be careful of the deception. Be careful of the deception. I said this before, but it's worth saying again. He says there'll be many who call themselves Christ. Uh, whenever I visit the Philippines, in, in Davao City, where, where Joshua comes from, there's a ministry there, Pastor Quibaloy. Uh, he's got a mega church. He's got branches all over the Philippines and in other places where Philippines are. He's on television every day. Every day he's on television. He's very accomplished. He's a great communicator. He's very suave. But he actually believes, publicly declares that he is the Christ, the Son of God, the Son of God on earth. That when Jesus went back, God sent him as his Son on earth. And people believe it. They actually believe it. And they sing the songs that we sing. And they sing the old rugged cross. I've seen them sing them with the tears coming down their eyes. And yet they believe the man behind the pulpit is the Son of God, not a Son of God, the Son of God. Such is the power of the deception. 
at the last election, and we know this is Joshua not the last election, the mayor of that city was elected because of his church got behind him. I've seen photographs of him standing beside the mayor of the city. Lord is a great man, and he helps the poor. <laughs> and he's totally deceived, and he's a deceiver of people. And this is what it's going to be like in the last days. So deception is going to be very strong. Accusation. I'm going to go quickly. Now we kind of touched on this before, so I'm going to skip through this. Accusation. I've already stated in these studies that he accuses God to men. We saw that tonight, even in Eden. Where he's trying to make out that God's some kind of a killjoy, spoil sport. He doesn't want you to, to be blessed and so forth. He wants to deny you and hold stuff back from you. So he accuses God to men. He accuses men to God. We saw it in Zechariah 3, where Joshua the high priest was standing and Satan stood by his side, the adversary, and the devil, the accuser, the slanderer. And he accuses us to each other. You see that in the story of Job. Job's friends come along, and they look at poor Job, all that he's gone through, the state that he's in, and instead of bringing a word of comfort to the man, they brought a word of accusation. It's your fault. There's secret sin in your life. God's punishing you. You've been caught on. You put on this big front of being a righteous man, but underneath it all, you've been living wrong, and God's exposing you for what you are. That's the basis of their argument against Job. Accusation after accusation after accusation. Miserable comforters, he called them. No wonder. Galatians 4.15, But if you bite and devour one another, beware lest you be consumed by one another. Haven't time tonight to get through it. If you look at Proverbs 6, 16 to 19, it's an interesting verse there. What God hates. 1 John 2, 1, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Aren't you glad for that? So when the accuser of their brethren comes, we have an advocate with the Father, the Lord Jesus. He comes against us with affliction, both mental and physical and emotional affliction. We saw that this morning. The woman who had a spirit of infirmity, though whom Satan has bound for these 18 years. And we saw dumbness and blindness and lameness and insanity and torment and convulsions and a whole list of things. Actually, the scripture said, in those instances were caused by demonic spirits. But what about Job again? He was struck with sore boils from head to foot. Did you ever get a big zit? the side of your nose or the side of your head. It's not half sore, isn't it? You get one in the back of your neck, it's even worse, isn't it? Especially men that wears collar. Every time you turn your collar, it's, oh, it's not half sore. How would you like to be covered from head to toe with sore boils? There's a physical affliction. He lost his family, his marriage broken down. There's mental and emotional affliction. He lost his family, he lost his children. What grief, what heart Sorrow he went through. He lost his camels, his donkeys, his sermon. All his financial base was gone. Overnight was gone. Imagine being broke overnight, gone. Everything you've ever worked for, taken away in a second. And that's what happened. Such affliction. The work of the enemy comes against us, doesn't it? Opposition. Satan means adversary, opposer. He opposes all that is godly and all that is righteous. Let 
a man or a woman who is righteous. Let them stand up. Let them stand up whether in parliament, or whether in a council office, whether in the chambers of government, whether as a skilled governor or some other department head. Let a righteous man or woman stand up and declare the truth of God's Word. And what happens? They are immediately opposed. The adversary comes immediately against them. And such an onslaught they're going to get. Louis Gigolo, who's uh, got a great church in America, uh, highlights a lot of human trafficking, uh, does a great work uh, against human trafficking, uh, has a big passion conference every year where there's up to 60,000 university students go to it, preaching the gospel and sharing Christ with them. He was asked by uh, President Barack Obama, his second inaugural uh, inauguration is today actually, but it's going to be public tomorrow. And he asked him to come, uh, or at least the inaugural uh, committee invited him to come and to pray the closing benediction, which he was very, very happy to come and to do that. It's a great privilege. Until, until they dug into his background and they found it nearly 20 years ago. He preached a sermon in his own church to his own people and said homosexuality is a sin. Nearly 20 years ago. And they dug that up. And they caused such a furore that he withdrew and says, no, I don't want to do this. Because my prayer will just be wasted. Because there'll be just such an onslaught against it. So he just withdrew. And of course, they got in his place to pray that prayer, a pro-gay minister. Now that's the state that it's got to. Where somebody who doesn't even make an issue of homosexuality, doesn't preach it hardly ever, 20 years ago, one sermon, and they hunted it out. They went back and back and back and back to find something. And there's such an onslaught against that man. Well, we saw it in the Bible with Daniel, didn't you? A very righteous man. A man that God used to minister to many kings. And yet there was such an opposition against him that he ended up in a den of lions. You saw it with Joseph in the house of Potiphar. You saw it with Mordecai. Mordecai, who was a righteous man and a Jew, and how that Haman and his hatred against Mordecai and all his people wanted to kill him and to hang him. And of course he hung on his own gallows. And on and on you could go. So let a righteous man or woman stand up publicly and declare God's truth and see what happens. You need to be very brave, don't you, in the public arena today to be righteous. You know, we should pray for politicians, especially Westminster politicians. There's not too many Westminster believers. There are a few, but not too many. And they do a great work, but they don't get it easy. They do not get it easy. And then the final one is death. Is death. Satan has no greater power over man than death. Paul said that the sting of death is sin. In other words, it is sin that stings men to death. When Adam sinned in the garden, that sin 
stung him to death, as it were. He immediately died spiritually. The poison of sin, of that sting, he immediately died spiritually. And after some years, he died physically. And that's what sin does. That's why Paul says, in Adam all die. But aren't you glad that Jesus conquered sin and death on the cross? Because even though he says in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. Glory to God. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, just look at this quickly. The resurrection chapter, of course. Verse 15, Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, in the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption. This mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Life is short, death is sure. Sin the cause, Christ the cure. And there you have it in a nutshell. But while we're on earth, death is a weapon that's used against us. And sickness and disease brings death. But thank God it is conquered eternally and forever. And even though our bodies may die, they may not. We may go up in the twinkling of an eye. But if that doesn't happen, even though our bodies die and turn to dust, yet we have the sure and certain hope of the resurrection from the dead because Christ will make sure of that. And we shall be forever with the Lord. Glory to God. Isn't that wonderful? Hmm. 1 John 3 and 8, For this purpose the Son of God was manifested that He might destroy the works of the devil. Thank God His works are being destroyed, being loosed. The chains and the binds that He has in people are being loosed. Glory to God. I'm just going to read this. We're almost finished here. Hebrews chapter 2. Verse 14, Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For indeed he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. 
and release those who through fear of death were all their time subject to bondage. None of us are looking forward to the physical act of dying. But the fear of death, thank God we've been released from it. Because we know that it will be absent from the body and what? Present with the Lord. One last verse in closing. One last portion. Revelation chapter 1. This is a wonderful thing. This is a powerful, powerful statement from the risen, glorified, ascended, resurrected Lord who sits at the right hand of the Father. In verse 9 of Revelation 1, I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet saying, I am Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. And what do you see write in a book? And send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet, and girded about the chest with a golden band. His head and his hair were white like wool, and as white as snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars. Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, Do not be afraid. Listen to this. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. Glory to God. Isn't that a wonderful image? I was lying in bed last night. I couldn't sleep. I had read that scripture and I couldn't sleep. And I tried to visualize it. I tried to imagine it. I tried to imagine what it must be like to be standing around the throne of God and to see the Lord Jesus Christ in all of His glory and all of His power and to see Him all of His brightness as the sun. The Bible says that the new heaven will not need any light from the sun or the moon because the light of the Lamb will be its light. Can you imagine what that must be like? Glory to God. The streets of gold, the city of jasper stone, it must have been absolutely breathtaking. And the more I thought about it, the less I could sleep. I don't know what time I got to sleep. But it's a wonderful way to try to imagine what that's going to be like. And that is the risen Lord Jesus. That's the one who has conquered death and conquered Satan and all his demon hordes. No matter how many of them there are, they are conquered. Glory to God. Amen. Now, next Sunday, God willing, what have we talked about? His character. What else have we talked about? Come on. Who's been listening? His creation. His campaign. Next Sunday, we're going to talk about him being conquered.
And we're going to talk about Jesus conquering him and the church conquering him. Glory. We're getting to the climax. We're getting to the good bits coming next week. Amen. <laughs> Aren't you glad that the victory has been won now? Eh? Glory to God.